Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Open your Bibles to Romans. We're going to finish chapter 15 this morning. Uh, There's a very real sense in which the end of chapter 15 is the end of the letter, because chapter 16 is going to be a lot of uh, final notes, greetings, that sort of thing. There'll be a little bit of teaching in there as well, but you can look at this uh, final section and imagine that at least in some sense, this is the conclusion of the letter. It's just that once it's done, Paul adds a little bit after the fact and uh, (laughs) grants us a little bit more than we were expecting to get. I reminisced already about my childhood, and from the story that I shared, you can tell that I wasn't a particularly pious child. But my grandmother on my father's side was just the opposite. We used to go stay at her house, and I was always struck by her faith, by her practice of faith. And and in a way, I'll be honest, as a child, it could sometimes be a little intimidating and off-putting. It seems so alien. My grandmother was what used to be called a prayer warrior. She was one of these people who took prayer very seriously. I remember as we were at her house, she would disappear and we'd find her kind of behind the door of her bedroom and you could hear her on the other side talking aloud but not to herself. She was praying. She was talking to God. She was one of those people who spent time in prayer, secluded, deliberately in prayer. She kept these spiral notebooks full of of prayer requests, records of what she'd prayed for and what had happened as a result. I was too young to to read her handwriting, but I remember the look of it, the different color pens that she used and the way that the paper crinkled As she wrote in it, I imagine that my name was in one of those books and that she was praying, among other things, for me. And you may think about that. You might think about her example and wonder how it could have made any difference, how some obscure grandmother, a widow, could make any difference in the world from the seclusion of her bedroom. But I believe she did, and I believe she still does. And I think that if you have at any point ever benefited from anything I've said or done, you might owe some thanks to that woman in her prayer closet for the hours that she spent in prayer. Again, when we ask ourselves, how could such a thing make any difference in the world around us? Our text answers this. The Apostle Paul gives us insight into that question. As we look at verses 30 through 33 of Romans 15, Paul reveals the power of prayer, which sounds wonderful, but as you start meditating the power of prayer, we'll quickly come to the fact there's also a problem of prayer, and that problem has to be overcome before we can be a people of prayer. So hear the word of the Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf, that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that, by God's will, I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. 
May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Father, we ask for the peace that passes understanding, that comes from the assurance that you have spoken to us in your word. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Paul is speaking here of the power of prayer. When he's asking the Romans to pray for him, it's clear that he believes there's some point to this, that it might actually accomplish something. The power of prayer, simply put, is that it gives us a way to strive together for those who seem to be beyond our help. For people far distant, for people whose circumstances seem to put them outside the scope of our ability to offer aid, Paul shows us here that prayer actually gives us the means to render assistance. So if you look at the text, Paul's appeal to the Romans, and by extension to us, is actually pretty simple. If you pull out all of the the phrases and modifiers, he's basically saying, I appeal to you brothers to strive together with me. I'd like you to strive together with me. And how would we do that? In your prayers to God on my behalf. I'm going to butcher some Greek for you. The words translated here, strive together, in Greek sounds something like synagonisestai. Something like that. Sin, you might recognize. It's where we get uh, S-Y-N, like synthesis. That's the together part of it. Uh, the, the strive part is the Greek word agon, where we get our word agony, which originally captures like some of the, let's say, the, the blood, sweat, and tears that go into striving. So he's asking us to strive, to do this hard thing together with him. Now, there are a lot of people, in fact, I would say the vast majority of people who really don't put much stock in prayer, who don't see prayer as something very effective. And as a result, you might hear them say something like, don't just pray, actually join me in the struggle. You say, I'll pray for you, and they're like, yeah, great, but I'd actually appreciate some help. But the Apostle Paul is saying just the opposite. He's saying, join me in the struggle through prayer. So clearly he sees prayer and the value of prayer and the, the, the power of prayer very differently than we do. And it's something that we ought to consider. But you'll notice there's a specific kind of prayer he's talking about here, not just any prayer, not just any sort of good thought. Right? He's speaking specifically of what we might call Trinitarian prayer. Right? This is a prayer that is offered to God, the Father. But it is offered by our Lord Jesus Christ. He's appealing to us by Christ or in the name of Christ, the Son. And he asks, by the love of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. He is self-consciously invoking all three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, suggesting that the prayer that he's talking about, this prayer to the true God, is different than any other kind of wishing. Like this is prayer to the one and only God, and it has a power that no other prayer possesses. This kind of prayer, Paul seems to think, has the power to yield real-world results because he's asking for real-world help. Like First of all, you might think negatively speaking, he's asking for protection. He's about to take this journey back to Jerusalem, and he's asking, pray that I will be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea. 
That word unbelievers is interesting too. It's uh, apathuton uh, or something like that. And you can hear in that uh, apathy, the literal rendering of this, this word unbelievers would be something like those refusing to be persuaded. Paul's conscious of the fact he's going back into hostile territory. Last time he was in Judea, things, they didn't go that great. Paul's had some strife, some persecution. People want to stone him. They want to kill him, things like that. So as he contemplates returning, he asks that the Romans would pray for him, that he would be delivered from hostile persecution, to be delivered from the danger that he is deliberately walking right into with confidence because the saints are praying for him. He's also asking positively for some effective aid. He wants his service to be acceptable to the saints, which is an interesting thing to pray because his service is bringing them money. He's going to Jerusalem to bring all of the the, the cash that he's collected in Asia Minor and in Europe to bring it back to the poor of Jerusalem. And you're thinking, well, Paul, I don't think we really need to pray about that. Trust me, when you come with a bundle of money, people are going to accept that service. But Paul knows better. Paul understands that he's going into a a situation filled with strife, with ethnic tension, where people are arguing back and forth about uh, like like who is really pleasing to God. And he does not want this act of generosity to become uh, yet another kind of incident in the culture wars of the ancient church. And so he asks for prayer, not only protection from the world, but also acceptance of, among the saints, that there be no misunderstanding, no division in the body itself, which reveals not only his confidence in the power of prayer, but also his knowledge of the nature of the church, which is that the way that we are in real life isn't always the way that we have been called to be. And finally, he asks that after this journey, he might return joyfully to Rome and experience a time of refreshment. He wants to come back to them with uh, reason to rejoice after a successful mission. And he's asking them to pray for him, that all these things would come about. Then he gives them a benediction. As I say, this might serve as a kind of close to the book. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. It's interesting to note here, once again, as he's done over and over, the thing you need, he refers to God as the one who possesses it. You need peace, but God is the God of peace. And he asks that God would give that peace to you. So the interesting thing about this is the Romans are are far away from Paul at this point. We've talked about the geography here. The Adriatic Sea separates them. Paul is planning not to head towards Rome, but away from Rome, right? He's going back to Jerusalem, back where he started. And when he gets there, he will be about as far from the Romans as he has ever been. There is literally nothing these people can do to help him. He's not asking them for money for the collection. They're too far away at this point to be able to do this. He'll come to them later. But right now, there's nothing they can do. Whatever happens to him on this journey happens to him. And nobody in Rome can lift a finger to make a difference either way. And yet... Paul appeals to them to strive together with me. It's not even that he's saying, hey, remember me in your prayers. He's asking them to struggle with him. 
in this battle that he's about to fight. He thinks that in prayer, they can become his fellow workers, that they can participate in what he's about to do. Now, how is it possible for those who are powerless to lend any kind of help to actually strive together with him? It is possible, Paul says, in prayer, specifically by praying to God for him. Despite the fact that he's already doing the work that God called him to do, even though Christ himself intercedes for Paul on the right hand of the Father, and all of that is true, even though uh, all of of the, the angels in heaven, you might say, are rooting for Paul at this moment, he's still asking this distant church to come together and strive with him in prayer. If you have any doubts about the power of prayer, this should alleviate those. Because Paul clearly believes that it is helpful, it is essential, that it is a way for people far away to join in the struggle. Sometimes if we want to build aircraft carriers, we justify the cost by saying that if we have enough aircraft carriers, then we can project American power throughout the world, well beyond our borders. Things that are happening far away from us that we could never really influence, we suddenly can't influence if we have an aircraft carrier sitting off the coast of your country. Right? Projecting power. You get the idea. Well, Paul says that prayer gives God's people a way to project power, a way to strive together with those who are far beyond the borders of our material aid. When you think there's nothing I can do, I'm powerless to help. Paul says that's not true at all. You have the power of prayer. What Paul wants from the Romans is exactly what we should want for one another, what we should want for our fellow believers. Pray that they're protected from the hostility of the world. Pray that the gifts that they've been given, that they use to serve, that those gifts and that service would be acknowledged and acceptable to the saints appreciated in the church. Pray that they might enjoy and and experience refreshment in the communion of the saints, that they might find, as we might put it, more community. All of these things that Paul desires for himself are things we should desire for one another and that we should strive together in prayer for. As you think about the power of prayer, though, quickly you begin to realize there's also a problem with prayer, and the problem A prayer consists in the struggle to actually speak to God. We can talk all we want about the power of prayer. We can talk about great prayer warriors of the past in their prayer closets, filling notebooks full of notes. And it seems so impossible that we might do something like that. The barrier sometimes seems insurmountable. In the opening of his book, A Praying Life, Paul Miller describes some of the obstacles to prayer that we experience in the modern world. He says, our desire to pray comes from creation because we're made in the image of God, but our inability to pray comes from the fall. Evil has marred the image. We want to talk to God, but can't. American culture is probably the hardest place in the world to learn to pray. We are so busy that when we slow down to pray, we find it uncomfortable. We prize accomplishments, production, but prayer is nothing but talking to God. If we try to be quiet, 
we are assaulted by what C.S. Lewis called the kingdom of noise. And in the broader culture and in our churches, we prize intellect, competency, and wealth. Because we can do life without God, praying seems nice, but unnecessary. Money can do what prayer does, and it is quicker and less time-consuming. All of these sentiments and all of these obstacles stand in the way. When we want to have a life of prayer, when we want to talk to God, all of these things seem to make that quite difficult. And we convince ourselves that prayer is quite hard. Maybe something only a few people are really gifted to do. If you look at the Westminster Larger Catechism, though, if you look at question 178, it says this, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God in the name of Christ by the help of his spirit with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercies. That's it. That's as complicated as it gets. You'll note in that description, there's a Trinitarian aspect. Once again, we pray to God, we pray in Christ's name, and by the power of the Spirit. There's also a twofold focus in prayer, something that, that we've experienced in our service this morning, confession of sin and thanksgiving for mercy. But the core of prayer, what prayer is all about, is encapsulated in these words, offering up our desires. That's it. Talking to God, offering up our desires. If you want to go deeper into the doctrine of prayer in the larger catechism, question 178, which I just read, all the way through 196, covers kind of a deep theology of prayer. But really, that idea of offering up our desires, I would suggest, is all you really need. But that's, at its heart, what prayer is all about. Prayer is just talking to God. It's not rocket science. It's not hard. If you're concerned that you're not praying right, that you're not praying correctly, you're kind of missing the point. Because prayer is just talking to God about our desires, offering up our desires to him. If you think about it, the goal of prayer is summed up in the way we end our prayer, that word amen. That word means something like, I agree, or, or let it be so. What we're doing is we offer up our desires. We're kind of adding the weight of our desires to what God is doing. In the world, in our lives, we're, we're, we're chiming in. We're adding our voice. Prayer is not about getting what I want. It's not about changing God's mind, though sometimes prayer takes on both of those characteristics. Ultimately, prayer is just about communing with God, talking to God in a way that over time brings our desires in alignment with his and expresses our hearts to him. This is why prayer and meditation go together. Like to pray is, is, is similar to meditation in the sense that we ponder things, consider them, puzzle over them in the presence of God and offer imperfectly our desires to him. In Luke 11, the disciples see Jesus praying, and they ask him to teach them how to do this. And it's interesting because they would have seen Jesus doing this all the time. Jesus had a, a rich prayer life. He, he would go to particular places at particular time and spend time 
in prayer. So they witnessed him doing this, and they see it, and they're like, hey, teach us how to do this. And when you look at how Jesus responds, he does offer assistance, but it's not really much. He doesn't go into a long sort of dialogue on, on, on how to pray correctly. He gives them the model prayer, the Lord's Prayer, which we've prayed. And uh, in Matthew 6, he gives a few more kind of tips, you might say, uh, things to do or not do in prayer, but it's really not that much. I think the most important lesson, the most important way that Jesus taught them how to pray was just by praying. They saw him doing it, and they wanted to do that too, through imitation. Right? Jesus, in his life, made time for prayer, which prompted the disciples to want to do the same thing. The form of prayer, the posture of prayer, do you do it standing or kneeling or prostrate, whether or not you, you fold your hands, how you do it, should you interlock your fingers, is it better if you do that? Should you lift your hands? Should your eyes be closed or open? Things like that. The Bible doesn't actually specify stuff like that. It's not that it's bad. I think some things can help bring focus to prayer, but it's also possible to create barriers to prayer as well when we give the impression that it's meant to be done a certain way. And if you're doing it wrong, you know, maybe better off not to pray. might backfire on you. All of that, I think, is beside the point. Prayer is as easy as speaking to God, as sharing our desires with God, of adding the weight of our desires to the desires of all the saints, asking God to intervene and being able and willing to receive his response, which sometimes doesn't grant us what we desire, but changes our desires so that we accept what it is that he is doing. Every time we worship together, we're learning how to pray. If you think about it, we pray constantly in our services. Every week we pray the Lord's Prayer so that I hope those of you who have been here for a while have memorized it. Whether you tried to do it or not, you can say this model prayer that Jesus gave us by heart. That pattern is lodged in memory. That's not the only prayer that we pray by far in our service. If you look at your order of worship, we can kind of go through and you can see uh, how many times we pray in the average service. We pray at the beginning of the service, asking the Spirit's presence with us. We pray to confess our sins. We pray to receive God's pardon. We pray to dedicate our tithes and offerings so that God will use them. We pray for intercession for the world and for the church. We pray all those things. We pray that the Spirit would illuminate the Word as we read it and as we meditate on it. We pray to ask God to apply that Word to our hearts after the sermon is done. When we come to the communion table, we'll pray first, asking God to meet with us here for His Spirit to be present with us and in us as we partake of this sacrament. And before we leave, we will pray to thank Him for meeting with us at this table. Learning to pray by example, just by seeing it done. It isn't that difficult. Take this home with you, this liturgy, and over the course of the week, meditate on it, reflect on it, repray some of these prayers, and add your own desires to them. It's a way to begin to do this thing that is very easy to do and yet seems so difficult for us. It's a good start. And we need that start because the people of grace need to be a people of prayer. It's as simple as that. Paul elsewhere in Scripture calls us to be people of prayer, not to neglect prayer, not to think that there's no reason to commune with God, no reason to share our desires with him, that it avails nothing. Instead, that this should be at the center, at the heart of who we are. 
If you look in 1 Timothy chapter 2, Paul, in instructing and guiding Timothy, says the church should be a body of people at prayer. He says, starting at the beginning of that chapter, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people. In Romans 15, he's specifically asking for himself, but as part of a much larger project of praying on behalf of all people. He goes on to say, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, which is a great thing for someone who's experienced active persecution from the authorities to be telling us to do. Paul, who has been persecuted, who will be put on trial and eventually executed, is saying, pray for the people who are going to do this to me that we might live peaceful lives. Demonstrating that he has a confidence in God's power that far surpasses the power of magistrates. Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.8, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Without anger or quarreling. Anger and quarreling, what do they signify? Like anger and quarreling, that kind of behavior, that's like the crest of the wave. But the water is anxiety. The water is fear. When people lash out in anger, when they quarrel, when they bicker, when they're quick to find fault, it's because of a lack of confidence. It's a weakness, an insecurity, a feeling of powerlessness that leads to this. You might say to yourself, well, Mark, that's exactly how I feel. That is exactly how I feel, and I get that. And the point is, you may feel that way. What Paul is saying is, it is not true. You may feel powerless, Paul says, it is not true. Your strength, your security, your power is in prayer. Talk to God, Paul says. He will listen. And whatever he chooses to do, those holy hands lifted up together will bring unity, will help us to be at peace with one another and at peace with the working of God in the world. Some of you have a real gift for prayer. As your pastor, I've become acquainted with with some of these things, and I realize there are people who really do fit the mold of what I was describing earlier, people who spend real time in prayer on behalf of one another. You may not know this, but if you're part of this church, you've been prayed over. You have been the recipient of the kinds of affection that my grandmother directed towards me because you have been lifted up in prayer. Those of you who are like this, filling your notebooks with prayer requests, journaling those things down, devoting that time to it, I ask you to join the church in lifting up those holy hands. Lift up this church. Lift up its people. Pray that we will be protected from the hostility of the world. Pray that our service will be received and appreciated in the church and in the community. Pray that we will have joy and refreshment in the communion of the saints. Pray with me that all these things might be so. Strive together so that this might come to pass. And if you struggle to talk to God, 
If you're not sure how to do it, then just do what the disciples did. Follow the example all around you. Do what you see around you. Do what you hear over and over again in worship. Take it with you and start doing it in your life. Remember the model that Jesus gave us and and add your desires to it in speaking to God. Don't get caught up on technicalities. Don't worry about doing it right, saying it right, making it fancy. None of the stuff that we typically worry about. Just talk to God about the desires of your heart. Strive together with us. And may the God of peace be with you all. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.